the founder and president of PETA, the largest animal rights organization in the world, with more than 6.5 million supporters worldwide. She's the author of more than a dozen books translated into several languages, including her latest, Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. New Kirk, a former Washingtonian of the year, has been featured for her work for animals in The New Yorker, Time Magazine, People Magazine, Forbes, The Financial Times, and numerous other publications. She has appeared on TV shows and podcasts all over the world, including on Real Time with Bill Maher, The Rich Roll Podcast, and Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin. She is the subject of a BBC special and the HBO documentary, I Am an Animal. Ingrid Newkirk, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Thank you, Mia. Delighted to be here. So first, congratulations on your book, Animal Kind, which you co-authored with uh, Jean Stone, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. And I think it should really be a compulsory reading uh, just in terms of the book, but also your life's work is really a distillation of compassion uh, and understanding that really helps us appreciate what's it like to be behind behind their eyes to, to maybe understand in some way what it's like to inhabit their skin and and once we understand that I just want to thank you because it helps us uh, hopefully come to the understanding that we can't treat them the way that we do. Yes absolutely um, the book is in two parts and the first part as you know is opening our eyes and our hearts and our minds to who animals are their wonderful abilities, their communication, their emotions, their intelligence. And then the second part is, now that we know who animals are, what are we doing that may inadvertently harm them? And how can we change our habits? Yes, and it's so effective on so many ways. So, I mean, in so many ways, it should be a like a difficult read for us to really face what we do to animals. But in, when you really illustrate that there are many talents, it's just a wonderful, a delightful read. I'm an artist. I could just imagine myself. It just opens my mind up to, to these worlds. Yes, absolutely. I think even those of us who do care deeply about animals really are oblivious to some of their most basic needs to be respected, understood, to have people think about what they're going through, what their experience is, rather than think of them as an accessory to a human life or there for our convenience. Uh, yes, and for those of us, I mean, most of us do know a bit about PETA, but just tell us for those who don't know, don't know the whole history, how you came to found it and you know your path to becoming the animal rights activist you are today. Well, Mia, I grew up like many people, really loving animals. Um, I had a dog who was like my brother when I was growing up. And I really felt that I was a kind person. My parents were kind, but we ate animals. We wore animals. I had my first fur coat when I was 19. I didn't think about the products that I bought. And I even went to the circus and I saw elephants stand on their heads and bears on bicycles, all that sort of thing. And so through a series of experiences, I came to realize that I was supporting very cruel operations that denied animals everything that is precious to them. 
And so after that time, I thought, well, if I, as an animal person, didn't realize what was going on, how meat comes to the table, how leather shoes are made, how cosmetics are tested in rabbits' eyes, how wild animals are taken out of the forest, their homes, and used in circuses, kept in cages, then there are a lot of people just like me who need to also know what I have learned. And so we formed a little group, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, to show people exactly what goes on behind the scenes, places they'll never see. They only see what's in the forefront that looks all happy and joyous and available. And then with that group, we don't want to make people sad. We don't want to make people just angry. We want to empower everybody to be an important conscientious consumer. And through their actions and what they buy and do, they are helping animals every single day, many times a day. And on another note, we're speaking on, you know, it's a day after Earth Day, which I believe should also be every day. Uh, and we just have to, if we even thinking about ourselves selfishly, we can learn so much from animals in terms of living in harmony with nature. And what are some of those things that you've learned? I mean, if you just want to think about our future on our future on this planet. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, why should it be one day when we think about our entire home and the future of the planet? We changed it this year to go vegan for the Earth Day. And lots of celebrities and politicians and who knows who uh, posted that on their social media sites and it really took off. It was wonderful to see, but it needs to be that we think about the earth, the animals, what we can do for our health, all those things every day. And you're right, because if you take a place like Alaska, which was forever millennia, a pristine wilderness, with waters that were clean, land that was fertile, beautiful trees and flowers, and all the species from whales to turtles, to beavers, to muskrats, to insects, all over the place, billions upon billions of animals. It was still clean as a whistle, still pristine. They know how to live in harmony and they know how to protect the earth. No one taught them. There wasn't a lesson in school, there wasn't a video, that they've managed it, then in come human beings. And we put up oil rigs and we drill and we put up our skating rinks and our shopping malls and our highways. We need so much, but it's not need, it's greed. So we need to learn from the animals how to live more gently and consume less and be more thoughtful and look out for each other in this great circle of life. That's really a, a beautiful message. And, and I love so much the way you illustrated that in, in your book. And just, I, I loved uh, it, just trying to imagine if it were possible for us to live sustainable lives such as them and to have, I just love reading about the different ways they communicate and 
and something just their their language this has been a thing that we've uh, some people even very enlightened people have used to say to what distinguishes us from animals that what i i get tired of hearing it they don't <laughs> they don't have a language this is so false and also this other idea that they don't have a conception of uh, death this sometimes i hear people say that and i i don't even understand that as a statement we definitely know that all animals have language. They talk to each other, they understand each other, and they have interesting ways of communicating that only recently have we figured out, even in part, because rhinos use a breath language. Fish use luminescence. Squid can actually send different messages, one on one side of their body, and one on the other side of their body with color and light and patterns. So they can ward off an enemy on one side by looking very fierce. And on the other side, they can be greeting a friend. So we do know cows have facial expressions that are so subtle, you can't really notice them. And that cats and horses use their ears and their tails and their whiskers and so on. But animals communicate with sounds too. And we know that elephants rumble and they purr and they almost growl, but they do it subsonically under the ground. And you need instrumentation to capture that sound. Humans can't really get the nuance of it. And it's not just sound. It's that a mile away, another herd of elephants hears that. And they don't just think, oh, there's a herd over there making a noise. They know that that means there are people with guns threatening our children, or we have found water, come over here and enjoy it. So yes, all animals have language. Birds have amazing language. And you have to sometimes capture it and slow down the recording to find all the notes that they're using in between, like dolphin clicks that you can't hear with the human ear. Really, they're just, uh, there's just artists. I feel like our language are, we have different languages too, those of us, but it's really only when we are maybe even approach or somehow get a little bit close to the abilities of animals we call someone a great artist or a great athlete after years of training can you imagine being able to speak <laughs> one side of your body with the different colors of it's, it's too amazing and um and they're artists too mia of course yes. as you well know i mean in the book i talk about this little fish um divers went down into the sea and they couldn't figure out what these alien patterns were magnificent circles with all sorts of swirling patterns, all symmetrical, geometrically perfect in this vast design. And it looked as if alien beings had descended from another planet and made this pattern on the ocean floor. Turned out it was this tiny fish who uses his fins to carve this out so perfectly so as to impress a female fish. And we've also seen, for example, the bower bird. The bower bird goes out and collects anything shiny or pretty, just as we might decorate our homes, the way an octopus decorates their home with shells. 
the bower bird brings back yellow flowers and red flowers and even little plastic things that he finds and he makes an entranceway that is so spectacular to his beautifully woven nest and makes a little walkway that's all decorated so as to say to a prospective partner, look, look what I've done, come and admire my handiwork. And it is admirable, I couldn't do it, but they are very artistic. Oh, definitely. And what's interesting about all of these instances is this artistry is not one of being dominant over nature. It's still utterly in harmony. Oh, it absolutely is. And when you see a bird or even a squirrel make a nest, you have to be absolutely stunned at the talent. I mean, if you look up in a tree, can you imagine going and finding a twig somewhere and putting that first twig in the crook of a tree up so high and then going and getting a second twig and trying to keep them from falling off the branch and then weaving all these other twigs in, in this intricate design and then filling the bottom of the nest with moss or sometimes uh, birds and squirrels will pick up plastic to try to make it rainproof. They've learned what that is. Sometimes they'll take discarded cigarette butts and stick that between the twigs to repel insects. I mean, this is all so clever. It's so artistic. It's so talented. And it's almost impossible for a human being with fingers on both hands to figure out how we could do that ourselves. Yet they do it and they do it every year and they do it again if a storm knocks down their nest. We should be in awe and respect animals, absolutely. I feel, and, and I know those that are more educated about it are learning, uh, we'll be finding out sustainable um, solutions for our future just by studying animals, because there are so many things that if we really spent time studying them, we could, that is interesting because sometimes when you think about um, our sustainable futures, it can be a bit overwhelming. There's a, so much systemic change that has to take place, but maybe there's this other side where you, if you've studied so many animals and that you know it's possible just by studying them to live in harmony with nature. Oh, they absolutely do, of course. They respect nature. Nature is an integral part of everything that they do. A little desert mouse, will take a rock and push it outside her burrow at night in the, in the desert, in the heat, so as to catch dew, uh, condensation from overnight. I mean, we learn from them. Little spider makes silk that's so strong. It's stronger than Kevlar, if you can imagine that. You know, all the things that animals do, they read the winds, they read the Earth's magnetic field. They don't need a GPS or a map. They don't need anyone to ask directions of. And yet they'll fly 7,000 or more miles away to a continent far, far from where they began in their nest and come back to the same town, the same village, the same home, the same nest in a year. And no one told them how to do that. So they know the ocean currents, uh, turtles having their children, uh, laying their eggs on the beach. And then when the moon rises, those eggs hatch 
those babies know instantly in tune with the earth to go back to the sea and to use the tides and the currents to get where they're going. We've either never had those abilities or we've lost them. But animals all live in tune with the earth. Even a dog will rotate on a north-south axis just as a cow will do to graze, to do their business because they are in tune with the earth's axis. How impressive is that? How small does it make us look? Thank you all for tuning in to this conversation. I'm Hannah Story Brown, a 24-year-old environmental writer and an associate producer and interviewer for the Creative Process Podcast. Listening to Ingrid Newkirk's passionate defense of animals' rights to their own lives, it struck me that we're used to being in the dark about the world around us. We know so little about what surrounds us, but we place relatively little value on what we don't know, the mysteries of lives other than our own. A lot of us are scared of the dark. For centuries, dense forests have seemed ominous and dangerous, places where we might lose ourselves. But then there's the flip side of the coin, which is that every story we tell each other is incomplete. Words can't represent anything holy, but that's where imagination comes in. Why do characters on the page feel real to us? It's because we fill in the gaps. Where words aren't enough, we imagine characters into life by infusing them with what we know of our own wholeness. Because we are full, real people, we can imagine others as full, real people. So why do we do this so selectively with animals? Why do we find it so hard to imagine the fullness of their spirits? People surprise us all the time. We're even mysterious to ourselves sometimes. So why aren't we willing to give other species the benefit of the doubt? Why would we assume that just because we don't know what it's like to be them, there's nothing there worth protecting? This is also why stories are powerful. If we struggle to imagine what it must have been like to be a woodpecker or a zebra or a butterfly or a shrimp, then it becomes imperative that we learn the facts of their lives and appreciate the beauty of their behaviors. Woodpeckers communicate with each other through different drumming patterns. Zebras arrange themselves so their stripes look like grass to colorblind predators. Caterpillars completely melt into goo in the cocoon before they reform as butterflies, but butterflies still retain memories from their time as a caterpillar. Mantis shrimp have nine more kinds of light receptors in their eyes than humans, and can communicate with each other through reflecting a kind of polarized light that our eyes can't even see. If you look closely, every little mystery starts to look like a miracle. Now back to the interview. And so how can we, I mean, we can, we can read your books, we can get involved in these programs, um, but how would you go about sort of reintroducing or reinforcing some of this knowledge in our educational models so that we might be more in tuned. I mean, I, I think we really have to, it's something that wasn't part of, uh, I've had a chance visiting farms or never, but I wasn't, I was born in a city, you know, and how, <laughs> how can we do this? How can we make this part of our educational models? And then of course, it's part of um, ha having respect for animals. Yeah, very much so. I mean, all of us, even if we grew up in the country, need to know more about the other living beings who share the earth with us, because we are very bad sharers. And we are so disrespectful. We have human supremacism. 
We just think we're the be all end all of the universe. And we're not, we're like babies out there, spoiled brats, if you will. <laughs> but so many teachers now are taking uh, children out into the forest, into fields, and they are also using video to show the wonders of life. It used to be, and in many places it still is, that science classes teach um, biology using a real frog, and many frogs sometimes. Those frogs are individuals like us. They have thoughts and feelings, they have a life, and they were snatched away from it, taken from ponds and rivers and streams, lakes. And that's devastating to the environment as we are finding out but it's also devastating to the individual frogs. Today, there are things like sin frog, a synthetic frog, that you can just cut him open, take his organs out, put them back in, reuse him over and over again without harming any living being, without disturbing the earth. When I was in school, um, I was lucky enough that a disciple of the great Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore came to my school. And he said to us, you are very spoiled little girls. It was a girl's school. He said, all you think about is music and clothing and where you're going to go for your holidays. He said, look outside, look at the trees, look at the earth, look at the streams, look at the flowers, look at the birds, and just be in wonder it's so much more impressive than any technology. And so I think at the time it didn't resonate, but later on in life, I thought he was absolutely right. We need to think more and we need to discipline ourselves more to be more aware of the earth and her inhabitants. I think it's certainly changing. I mean, I'm uh, lucky to be around um, a number of our students who are millennials. And uh, there is this, I, I know that you know, this surge of compassion. It, it comes at the same time when there's so much technology, but there's this counterbalance. Well, it is good. The technology that's good is that we have the internet. So we don't have to go to Africa or South America or the polar regions to see what's happening there. We can see all of this on the internet. That's such a joy. So really we can explore just from our homes and our classrooms with the press of a button. So that is uh, just a great advance that people didn't used to have. And when people set out to explore in the past, they were very bad to other human beings who were strangers. They were very bad, exploitive, taking them prisoner, using them to all the other forms of life they saw. They had never seen natives of those countries and they took them as slaves. They had never seen exotic animals and they took them as prisoners back to their countries to put in zoos and circuses. So nowadays we are able to be more respectful because we have seen more, we've learned more. It's all at our fingertips. And we just have to apply those lessons to our daily lives and be caring, be considerate, be compassionate, be respectful, be understanding, no matter anyone's race, religion, gender, species, we're all in this together. And that's the number one thing I think we have to live our lives by. 
And in terms of teachers, uh, I guess both humans and animals, or maybe I should have them in the wrong order, but maybe both animals <laughs> and humans, you know, what, what have been some, who have been some important teachers for you and inspired? Well, I, we are all animals. Of course, as you know, is that we tend to say humans and animals, but really we're all animals. Biology 101 teaches us that. And people tend to say, oh, uh, such and such an animal has this human trait, or they share this human trait. They're not human traits. They're all shared traits. Because of course, we all love, we all love our families or not. Uh, we all grieve if somebody we love disappears or dies, a family dog, perhaps a grandfather. Um, we all feel loneliness. We all feel joy. We all really value our freedom. And so I think if anything, looking into the eyes of the animal, even online, you see a person in there. There's a someone in whatever the shape or the physical properties of that individual are. And that lesson is that I am you, you are me, only different. We are, we are all the same in all the ways that count. Little things don't count. How many, um, uh, how much fur you have or don't have, whether you have fins or you don't have them. Any living being teaches you, look into my eyes and there you are, the reflection of yourself. That's so beautiful. And yes, we've had this, those, I guess there are some maybe who have haven't yet had it, but yeah, that that point of connection, and I can't say that my um, instincts or my abilities to communicate with animals are, and I don't mean to differentiate. I I say I am an animal <laughs> too. Um, is is so great, but there though there are some who are, have this kind of instinct. They're co animal communicators, and, and how how they develop it, I don't know what, but they just read each other perfectly. And it must be a beautiful moment to come to. Uh, it's like, it's so exciting. Yeah, I once uh, was very skeptical of animal communicators and I still am of many of them, but I think some do have exactly what you said is this almost psychic connection. They can intuitively tell and also being around animals a lot helps you read what they're thinking that swish of the tail, the ears going back, the hesitation, the tail going between the legs on a dog who's frightened. Um, but once long ago, I lost my cat and it was a terrible situation. I was absolutely panicked. I had done everything. And on the ninth day of her loss, after I had really figured, there was nothing left I could think to do. I was grieving. Uh, someone said, call this psychic. And I thought, I'll do anything. So I called her. And she told me that my cat had come out of an open window, which was true, had gone down a set of steps, which I had, had crossed a major road, which was quiet at night, which was right outside my house, had gone through a long field and was on the other side of the road that it had rained. And she was too afraid to come back because there was traffic in the morning. And I thought, this is amazing. And I fled across the road looking for her. 
didn't find her and thought that's rubbish. The next day, a woman called me. She was about a mile on the other side of the road. She said, your cat is under my porch. I saw your sign at the intersection. So I'll never know if this woman had a real connection or she didn't, but I just know that when a cat is lost, you try everything, including an animal communicator. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about whether we once had these, the communication, the language, the different language abilities that animals have, and whether we've lost them. And I think that that extrasensory perception, some people are, 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 tuned, are tuned in, you know, and then there's others that maybe, you know, <laughs> and they're living and they aren't as talented. But I think it is, I do think it is possible. And when you're young too, where you, when you have fewer barriers, like when you're a child, I mean, I remember, I was so young to remember, but I was, I went in, I was in, went into a field and there was a buffalo and they were terrified that I'm this baby in a field with a buffalo but there was a trust and when that trust is there you can't be harmed so I don't know if I understand what the the buffalo is thinking but it understood not to be threatened by me and uh, well that is true too Mia I think you've touched on an extremely important point because animals recognize human other animals recognize human children and their vulnerability much more than humans recognize the vulnerability of other animals' children. And so often there are cases of a dog or a bear or a wolf or any animal in the woods, in the forest, in the jungle, who will protect a human child until that, that child can be found. And these are not myths. These are not fables. These are real stories where somebody is so thankful that that dog or whichever animal it was laid on top of that or next to that child to keep them warm through the cold or to protect them from uh, marauding predators or whatever, or went in a little pig, went into a lake and pulled a child out who had fallen in. Animals alert us to fires. They smell with their wonderful sense of smell, smoke or flame or something, before we do and come and wake us up to say, get out of the house. So I think, yes, they have amazing senses that we don't have or have forgotten. And part of that is, you know, we never knew there, was, there were radio waves until, what, 100 years ago? Not less than that. Marconi discovered radio waves. We didn't know you could have radio. We didn't know you could have these. So yes, there may be other forces that we don't know that they do. I think so. It's, it's, it's something about being cutting ourselves off from nature and thinking that that is evolution. And in some ways it is, you know, in some ways we help protect ourselves, but it, we definitely forget things through, along the way. And I want to say also in animal kind, we've been focusing on the language now of animals and their worlds and what we can learn from them. There's a lot of practical, actionable advice, whether, you know, in what you do throughout uh, PETA as well with your campaigns, how, how we can live, live vegan lifestyles. And just tell us a little bit about that, because sometimes people are afraid and they don't understand how or they, but there's a lot of information in there oh it's so easy and you'd be amazed how powerful you are because there are so many choices that you make throughout the day without even thinking about them I mean obviously everybody eats and so there's a great place to start is to veganize what you eat 
Um, you know, when what you have for breakfast is so easy to veganize, what you have for lunch, what you have for dinner, your snacks. And there's a wealth of information. We even have a free downloadable vegan starter kit that you can get and shops and all sorts of advice. Then what you wear, because it goes back to if there is an animal, this is the simple rule. If there is an animal involved in something you are doing or buying, think about it. Are they volunteers? Would they have given the skin off their bodies? Would they have given their hair? Would they have given their lives for this? And so if you think, oh no, someone wants to take a picture of a parrot on my shoulder, it seems so cool. You think, does the parrot really want to be there or are they being deprived of their life in a flock with others of their own kind able to fly? Or have they been reduced to just a prop or an amusement? And so you would say, no, 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 I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to give any money to this enterprise. So what you eat, what you wear, what you buy, how you amuse yourself. And remember that what we don't see often is animals in laboratories. And almost every product um, has a choice to be made cruelty-free, which means it's been tested on human corneas, human skin, they graft it, it's, it's species specific, you know what it's going to do in a human being, or in a test tube, or with a high-speed computer programmed with human information, or down a rabbit's throat. So look for that little symbol, the cruelty-free leaping bunny. Look on the internet and see the list of which companies test on animals and which don't, which have animal ingredients and which don't. But just being aware and asking yourself, is that animal there voluntarily? Did that animal body part get discarded by that animal? Or did that animal have to be tied down and hurt and maybe even killed for that? Oh, you, and you've done so much through, uh, thank you. I mean, for your lifelong uh, commitment to this and what you and, and, and Peter has done for really mainstreaming this uh, awareness and bringing those, uh, just you, the fact that we can have labels and we can be informed, uh, you know, at a glance, doesn't take too, too, too much work. And, you know, you were noted um, uh, towards the beginning uh, of Peter, you know, it was sometimes the campaigns were uh, were known for being a little shocking, you know, but you had to get people's attention. But through that, through um, you know, abolishing fur, through now you have new things on your horizon. What are some of those campaigns and how can we get involved? Well, of course, it isn't just fur. And nowadays, especially young people don't want to see be seen in fur at all. It's what your grandmother or great grandmother wore. They have no idea why it was ever a status symbol. It looks like something survivalists would have worn. But we are saying uh, there are other things that are just as bad as fur. We don't need to take the skin and the wool and the hair and the feathers off animals' backs. We need to leave them where they belong. Those things all belong to the animal who was born in them. And so when we go shopping, we can look for apple leather and pineapple leather and tea leather and mushroom leather. The same is happening really uh, with technology is we now have, instead of 
force feeding animals or putting electrodes in their heads, keeping them in cages for an entire lifetime. We have human organs on a chip. You can get a liver or a heart on a chip and you can do whatever you want with that. We have whole human DNA on the internet. You know, we have so many things that have progressed from the old medieval kinds of experiments, but we need to push for them. And the same is true with the meat industry. There's a taste alike for every taste that you grew up thinking, oh, I like that, but it came from an animal. It came from a slaughterhouse. And nobody thinks a slaughterhouse is a nice place or the truck, the lorry going to the slaughterhouse or the mutilations on the factory farm. If you smelt them, you would think this stinks because it does, it's hideous. So all the things we have now with the products from fake shrimp, even caviar that isn't made from the eggs inside a fish's stomach. I mean, we have cheeses and milks. There's a camembert now that is vegan, camembert. Um, and so we have all these things at our fingertips and we just have to show we're the kind of people, the kind people, the animal kind people who will use them. It's wonderful. So, so many advances. And I want it to be accessible for all. Uh, it's uh, Sometimes it's more accessible in, in some countries than in others. But um, I think that, as you say, uh, even in, in the book, you say how you can even, you know, gently lobby when you're going to restaurants. You can say, you know, the, our consumer power is immense. And sometimes we just don't realize it. Oh, everybody wants to sell you something. And all you have to do is tell them what you will buy and they will stock it. So it's very important to write to things, companies you won't buy from to tell them why you won't buy from them and to promote the companies you will buy from. As you say, tell the restaurant manager, the store owner, just educate everybody, your friends, your family, everybody, let them know what you have discovered because I am forever grateful to the people who told me what I didn't know about how animals were treated and how they were killed. At the time, I may have been a little defensive and thought, oh no, I, I don't want to hear that. But I did want to hear it because I want to be an educated person and I want to live my life in an ethical way, the way that I'll be proud to tell anybody I live it as I go through it until the end of it. So tell everybody, show them the videos, get the YouTube videos of what animals are enduring and the happiness animals have, the joy of their rescue and just use it so that we can grow the amount of kindness in the world. And not only that, for our health's sake, you know, a healthy vegan lifestyle is one of, you can add years to your life. Oh, yes. You look at your uh, relatives who are getting older, and a lot of times they're on medication, they're taking pills, they're overweight, they have trouble walking, all sorts of things that don't have to happen. Because as we know, a vegan diet, low fat vegan diet, and moderate exercise are going to keep us healthy. I'm almost 72. I'll be 72 in a minute. I don't take any pills. And I don't think this is a fluke. 
it's that I have been vegan for over 40 years now. And it's it certainly, as I look around, I think, gosh, this is fantastic that, uh, <laughs> that I'm healthy. But it, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, the things you see in your family as they age, those are mostly preventable diseases. They come from meat and dairy and fat. And there is no cholesterol in any vegan product, none, zero. Well, it's uh, amazing. I think that we just put a, a photograph of you and say this woman is a 72 and with this glow and, you know, for vanity's sake, I think that you will bring people over. I think that that's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's really amazing. Yeah, we had so many of these preventable diseases and we want to have a good quality of life if we're not thinking just about speciesism or uh, human supremacy terms, but just pure selfishness we want to have a good quality of life and uh so i think uh you know you've shown us so many ways and through your your great example and commitment and just uh in terms of i don't know what what is next for peter what are some of the things that you're what are your campaigns that you're looking forward to uh, achieving well we have come a long way in the 40 years we've existed Almost all wild animals are out of circuses in many countries. And in many countries, wild animals in circuses are banned, especially elephants. And we want to see all animals out of all entertainments. There is no reason to take baby elephants away from their mothers, train them so brutally, keep them in chains, just to give tourists rides, for example, or to travel from town to town in the circus. So all the use of animals in entertainment, the dolphin shows, let those animals be free. Stop breeding them in captivity. Stop using them in small tanks and small cages for our amusement. That's one thing. The entire revolution of the clothing industry has begun. And I think that it's going to be the case that in the end, we will have wonderful fibers, natural things, jute and cotton and all these things and special fibers that come from synthetics that believe it or not, like recycled plastics from the ocean are more environmentally friendly than anything that comes from an animal. So the clothing revolution, the food revolution, the entertainment revolution, and most important to me is to get the animals out of the laboratories where they suffer for years and years. And we have a game plan that we ask students and others to talk to their uh, representatives in, in um, the legislatures about, which is a game plan that shows how you can replace every animal experiment with a modern state-of-the-art alternative that doesn't involve animals at all. Yes, as you say, there's really many ways. We don't have to think, we've always thought we would advance um humankind at some way by abusing animal kind, but there's so many, there's, as you say, there's a hundred percent humane solutions, alternatives to what we're currently doing. And I guess, uh, You've given us so much to think of. I want to direct anyone to, of course, reading your latest book, one of uh, many, and uh, peter.org, where they can visit, uh, they can download these game plans, they can get involved, uh, and 
you know, I guess in closing, as you think about the future and, uh, you know, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people, and I guess humans generally, what would you like us to uh, know, preserve and remember? I think that the first thing I'd like everyone to know is that if you need help making a transition of any kind or understanding anything about animals and how you can help them, please let us help you. And that's at PETA.org and so on. Um, the young people, obviously, as everyone says, are the great hope for the future. And that's because they'll live longer than the rest of us. And so they have the potential to use their voices, their typing fingers, their ethics to advise others how to become kind. We have to become a compassionate, understanding, respectful society. And that goes back to each of us. It's not for the government to do it. We can't wait for everybody else to do it and then join. We are the guardians of the animals. We are the hope for the future. Young people are so important, but they have to know that it is on them. It is personal responsibility to be the kind of people that they tell others they are. Well, thank you so much, um, Ingrid Newkirk, for your personal responsibility, your commitment, um, everything that you and Peter does to promote the ethical treatment of animals and to educate and inspire us to respect and live in harmony with animal kind. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer and Digital Media Coordinator for this podcast is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.